Proverbs 11.25 suggests, The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, When I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And again, James's petition to the people he writes to, If any of you lack wisdom, let them ask of God that gives to all liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to them. The word liberal, liberality, used eight times in the King James translation, but it's mostly based on a translation from the 1599 Geneva Bible, which includes many more uses. The, the basic concept comes from Deuteronomy. I don't think it's made more clear, actually, than something that's not quite in the text, than the margins. In the Geneva Bible, Deuteronomy 15:11, spoken just before the passage that Mary read, says, Because there shall be ever some poor in the land, therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand unto thy brother, to thy needy, and to thy poor in thy land. And in the margins, it reads, Thou shalt be liberal. There it is. The Bible tells us so, right? Now, many of us Americans know the common parlance. Liberal means your specific view of the size, the form, and the function of the government. And if you're a liberal, you believe a certain set of ways about how that is to be so. But let me channel the hero of Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya, in suggesting you keep using those words. I do not think they mean what you think they mean. Liberal, of course, has far more classical references that we need to rediscover. Some of you may have gone to liberal arts colleges, right? The generous, wide-ranging group of studies. All of us participate in a liberal democracy based on individual rights and peaceful transfers of power. But the classic use used most frequently in the French liberal, the word that's tied together with freedom and liberty, is the word generous. Christians are to be generous. James suggests that God will generously give you wisdom if you ask. So to be a liberal is to be generous. And to be a Christian means you have to be generous. Then in order to be a Christian, you have to be a liberal. And if you're not generous, if you're not liberal, you may not be a, a Christian. Some of us have heard about generosity before. We try to practice it. We especially hear about it whenever we have our stewardship, our fundraising sermons. But to think more openly about what that means and what that means about how we interact with the other, that's more challenging. Marilyn Robinson won the Pulitzer Prize in 2005 for her book, Gilead. It's a fantastic book. I invite you all to find this week. But she went further to study the use of the word liberal, historically, in the Bible. She gave a talk when she won the Kuiper Prize at Princeton Seminary when my wife and I were there. It was titled, Open Thy Hand Wide, Moses... Calvin, and the origins of American liberalism. And she just points to example 
after example of this commandment to be liberal. It's just pouring out of the pages of Deuteronomy, the Gospels, Calvin, and even Jonathan Edwards. Remember him from history class? Fire and brimstone, you better accept Jesus or you're going to burn. He was the first one of the Great Awakening in the early New England churches. But most of us, that's all we hear of the guy. He told us that we were going to burn and we stopped reading him. Turns out that's not what he talked about most of the time. For example, he suggests that the proper objects of our liberality are not limited to those of the same people and religion. Because our enemies, those that abuse us and injure us, are our neighbors. And therefore, they come under the rule of loving our neighbors as ourselves. Does that not sound like one of the most inclusive messages you've ever heard? And straight from the 1600s. Rediscovering this word and its meaning is important. Marilyn Robinson cites the ahistorical nostalgia of some in our country who think that we are built as a Christian nation when she says that there is clearly a feeling abroad that God smiled on our beginnings and that we should return to them if we can. But if we really did attempt to return to them, we would find Moses as well as Christ, Calvin, and his legions of intellectual heirs. And we would find a recurrent, passionate insistence on bounty or liberality, mercy and liberality, on being kind and liberal, liberal and bountiful. These phrases are all Jonathan Edwards, and there are many more like them. She goes on to quote authors and poets and American theologians. There's even someone criticizing the Calvinists because they're giving away too much of their money and their stuff. That's not the kind of Calvinism that I grew up hearing about. She is convinced that to rediscover our roots, we need to rediscover American Christian Calvinistic liberalism. I think most of us get that. We do our giving of our money to the causes we support, to the church, to the nonprofit. We do our giving of our time, maybe to somebody we think is worthwhile, or to an organization we think is doing well. We even think that sometimes we should be generous and liberal with our welcome. So sometimes we put up signs that say, all are welcome, or we write a little thing in our bulletin or on our website, all are welcome. And quite frankly, I've yet to find a church in the United States of America that thinks that that's a bad idea. Have you ever gone to a church that says, no, we, we don't say we're, all, we're welcome to all? Find me a church that says they don't think that they are a welcoming church. I will give you a lot of money. They don't exist. Everyone thinks they're welcoming and generous with it. But we have a couple problems. The first is that generosity is under attack. And the second is that Jesus doesn't show his liberal welcome in that way. Generosity is indeed under attack. I did one of these Google Ngram studies. You can put in a word and see from 1800s onward how often that word has been used in books and in English literature. And sure enough, you see the downfall of words like generous and generosity and liberality. 
You see the word liberal start to spike again in the second half of the 20th century, which is an obvious reference to when it started being used to uh, talk about political affiliations. But even in literature, liberality and generosity isn't being talked about anymore. And I think there's a good reason for that. Many of you sit on nonprofit boards or talk to me about serving a nonprofit and feeling like, Eric, it just doesn't feel like we're, we're getting it done. It doesn't feel like we're doing the job that, that we're supposed to be doing. We, we try to help these people, and we can't seem to fix them. We can't seem to help them in the ways that we want to help them. We put in our time, our talents, and our treasures, and something just isn't right. These disabled, these underprivileged folks, there's got to be a better way. Turns out that way is the Jesus way. I didn't really have a clear frame of reference for this. I knew there was something wrong with our forms of charity and giving because I've seen books come out like Toxic Charity and When Helping Hurts. But the real framework that helped me was this book, Living Without Enemies. It's from the Duke Center for Reconciliation. And I invite you, if you have any free time this Wednesday night, to come here to the church. And we'll be doing a book discussion of it for the next three Wednesday nights. When Living Without Enemies, Samuel Wells and Marsha Owens suggest that there are four modes of engagement with the other. And we see them in Christ's life. The first one is the one that we know the best. Working for the other. Let's say you're in the parking lot of the grocery store. You see someone who's struggling to carry their groceries. Your natural instinct is to say, Can I help you? Can I help you carry that? Can I carry those bags for you? We assume that person needs help, that we are the benefactor and they are the needy and we're going to help them. It's only natural and it's good. It's a pro-social behavior that's kind of wired into us. There's many good things about this, right? But there are two main problems with the working for model. The first is that there's not very much trust there. If you just go to a random stranger in the parking lot of Giant and ask to carry their groceries, they're going to think you're going to try to take away their groceries unless they know you and trust you. So that model doesn't really have a lot of trust. And the second problem with the model is that it's not very empowering. It assumes that you are the one who has all the resources, all the goods, all the skills, and the other is the needy. They're the one who need, and they need you. Well, doesn't that make you feel good inside? They need me. I will help them with their groceries. I will give my money to them. I will give. And they will get what I give them, and they will feel good. But as we know from the research over time, this disempowers folks. And so you have folks who believe they don't have skills to contribute. They don't feel empowered. The best analogy I've ever heard is from a sociologist in Michigan who suggests that when you put fleas in a jar without a lid, it'll continue to jump out. But if you put a lid on said jar, they keep hitting their heads. Eventually, over time, they stop trying to jump out, and they just jump to the level of the lid so they don't hit their heads. Turns out, if you take that lid off the jar, they don't try to jump out anymore. That's what toxic charity 
can do. If all we're doing is working for the other from our place of abundance and their place of need, in our view, we're telling folks to stop jumping. So working for the other, while it has its benefits, also has some huge downsides in the realms of empowerment and trust. That's working for. The second mode of engagement is working with. Working with is really good at empowerment. It's not necessarily as good at trust. You may get put on a team at work that you got to do a task together. And you may not have all the trust built up. You know that working together, though, over time, you can build some trust. But you assume you're on a team because the others have some gifts that you don't. They have some skills, some things that they can contribute to the completion of your project, your task together. That's why we do church together. We assume that we can build our faith better with one another than we can on our own. And the research suggests that to be true. It suggests that when you work with the other, that the journey is as important as the goal, and that everyone together can get some satisfaction from problem solving. If you see that person carrying the groceries, you come up to them and say, I see you're struggling. You know, I'm a bit taller. Why don't I carry the heavier bag and you continue to carry the rest of your bags and I will carry them with you. This is a very empowering mode is being used across the world to help develop different economies. So we have working for, working with. The third mode of engagement is being with. And being with is really good for trust. Being with is if you go up to the person carrying the groceries and say, I just want to be with you. You look like you're struggling, and so if you have a problem, you know, you can tell me, and I'm glad to help. But I just want to walk alongside you. You look like you've had a tough day. I think you should feel known and loved. That is kind of weird to say to somebody randomly in the parking lot of the grocery store. But can you imagine the kind of context in which that might be powerful? Your place of work. Your family. Your friends. What if the world stopped trying to help the needy poor, instead just built relationships with everyone? Their own community. Communities that are not resource rich. You go into a being with relationship for the sake of the relationship, to build trust, loving them because they are born in the image of God and intrinsically they have value. You don't assume you understand what the person's problem is. For example, I have tried to help folks who I visually have discerned are disabled, help them with doors, help them with groceries, and they've told me, please stop. This is my form of physical therapy. I need to do this. Or, no, please stop. I'm getting old. And this makes me feel good about myself when I can do these things for myself. We can work for the other. We can work with the other. We can be with the other. And we can also be for the other. Being for the other, for example, is like being a university professor. There is this other out there you're trying to help. If you're an economist, it's the market. So you're writing research. If you're not actually participating in the market, it's going to be kind of difficult. If you're a sociologist working on homeless issues, you're writing research and you're studying research for the sake of the homeless, 
but you may not be in actual proximity to or in relationship with anyone who's homeless. Again, this is great that we are trying to serve others, being generous and liberal with our time, but its obvious drawback is that if you're out of relationship, you begin to assume what the needs are, assume what the problems are to be tackled, assume what their gifts and strengths are. We can work for the other, we can work with the other, we can be with the other, and we can be for the other. Now, of those four, which one do you think that Western civilization and the church is most set up for? Working for, right? Most of, many of us have gone to school to be professionalized. I have a skill, and then you're going to pay me to do that skill for you on your behalf. There are a lot of good pieces of specialization. Adam Smith would be very proud of us in this regard. And yet, not all things work like that. We can work for the other in the sense that we outsource our 401ks, but when we try to outsource our faith development, for example, to the Sunday school program or to a pastor, the research is pretty clear that that doesn't work. Faith works best in relationship. Faith formation works best when you have at least five adults who love you and care about you and you are in vibrant relationship with. Faith works when you are with, not just working for. This problem is illustrated so perfectly by the community developer Ernesto Ciroli. He's on a project where the Italians went to Zambia to teach people how to grow food. So he says, we arrived there with Italian seeds in southern Zambia in this absolutely magnificent valley going down to the Zambezi River, and we taught the local people how to grow Italian tomatoes and zucchini. And of course, the local people had absolutely no interest in doing that. So we paid them to come and work. And sometimes they would show up. And we were amazed that the local people in such a fertile valley would not have any agriculture. But instead of asking them how come they weren't growing anything, we simply said, thank God we're here, just in the nick of time to save these Zambian people from starvation. And of course, everything there in Africa grew beautifully. They had these magnificent tomatoes. In Italy, a tomato would grow like this, and in Zambia, they'd have these huge tomatoes, and we couldn't believe it, and we were telling the Zambians, look how easy agriculture is. And when the tomatoes were nice and ripe and red, overnight, some 200 hippos came out from the river and ate everything. And they said to the Zambians, by God, the hippos! And the Zambians said, yes, that's why we don't have agriculture here. Why didn't you tell us? The Zambian said, you never asked. Jesus certainly worked for us, healing and doing wonders. But he mostly worked with us, by being with us. A God also named Emmanuel coming to us in the flesh and dwelling, understanding our earthly problems because he lived them, working alongside us, 
to heal the sick and to tell the good news, sending out his disciples to do the same work he was doing, being for us, even when we separated ourselves out from the love of God, died on the cross for our sake. Jesus asked questions. He asked 307 questions to be example, or to be exact, and others asked him 183 questions. He answered directly three of them. How can that be our mode of engagement? How can we live Christ's liberal welcome in the form of question asking and time spending and love? Not just putting up a sign that says, if you all come to us, we'll love you. How can we be with the other? As Marilyn Robinson writes, and when I was a child, Jesus did not say, I was hungry and you fed me, though not in such a way as to interfere with free market principles. Or, I was hungry and you fed me, though only when the kids didn't already have out a planned sport or lesson. Or, I was hungry and you fed me, though only when there wasn't a time crunch for other really important things. May you and I May we all rediscover this way of Jesus, being with and working with the other, loving, living Christ's liberal welcome. All God's people said.